Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's The Resilience Think Tank. I'm really pleased to see you here. We are talking about a topic that I am hearing about in the media, discussing with clients, and really learning about with everyone I know. And that topic today is about feeling overwhelmed. I am honored to introduce you to my guests today. I want to start out with Dolores Presley. She is president of Dolores Presley Worldwide, and she's the founder and executive director of She Elevates. This is a nonprofit organization that's created to empower girls to become confident leaders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. And I have had the honor of seeing her work with some of these girls. Dolores, when you personally are starting to feel overwhelmed, how can you tell? What do you notice about yourself? Well, Dr. G, I start to breathe. I mean, my breathing pattern really changes. I start to breathe really rapidly, but I do a couple of things. I will stop, first of all. I have this thing where I just go like, stop it, Dolores. Don't get yourself overwhelmed or, or getting excited. And I will breathe. I will inhale, hold it for a few seconds and exhale very slowly. And that really helps me. So I feel so much better when I do that. But when that breathing starts, I know that I'm getting a little overwhelmed. I like that you notice your breathing. And I also really appreciate the value of speaking to yourself in the third person. You know, on your yes. inner monologue, that's like, okay, all right, Debbie, you know what's happening right now and you can fix this. Yes, <laughs> that good old stop it. <laughs> Russell. Russell Cotter is an enterprise architect currently at Chipotle, but he's held other innovative leadership positions at 3P Morgan Chase and Bank of America, to name just a couple. He travels extensively with his partner, Sima, and is the father of two adult kids. Russell? Tell us, when you start to feel overwhelmed, what do you notice? Thanks, uh, Dr. J. Honored to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, good to see everyone. Um, I notice a lot of things, and I, I notice that I become frustrated because I have a whole list of things that I know require my attention, whether it's my job, my family, um, things I'm trying to do uh, to manage my life circumstances. And I then also become anxious in not knowing what to focus on first. Um, so part of my problem is that I, I've, I was also adult diagnosed ADHD in 2021. And one of the things that I've, I've had to do after that was to think of new techniques. So the first thing I have to do is to empty things out of my head. And I just use paper and pen. That's it. Paper and pen get out of my head because then I don't have to worry of forgetting that I had the things to do in the first place. Um, and then I, and then I, I make a plan and I start to, I actually literally write little check boxes because, <laughs> because I get, because it feels so good to scratch them off. Doesn't it? It does. It's satisfying. <laughs> yeah. It does. Um, I use that same technique of keeping pen and paper by my bed. When I wake up in the middle of the night for any reason, sometimes I feel myself, I call it spinning that all of a sudden yeah. I'm getting just this like download of a list of things that I ought to be thinking about or doing. And if I can write them down, I don't have to worry about remembering them. That's and it's right. really helpful. Exactly. Lastly, I want to introduce Victor Cho. Victor focused his work, um, well, his work life as CEO from 2014 to 2021, saving Evite and pushing it forward to its strongest revenue year ever in the midst of the pandemic. He navigated its successful corporate buyout 
and is now a member of their board of directors, among other board and advisory positions and a whole host of other things that he does. Victor, thank you for being here. And I'll ask you as well, how can you tell when you're getting overwhelmed? Now, it's such a pleasure to be here, Deborah. Uh, so two thoughts. One, it's actually super rare that I get overwhelmed. So I'm such a privilege being able to chat with this group and share how that happens. Uh, but when I do get overwhelmed, it's a very clear signal for me. Uh, in life, there's these two buckets of time. There's like the stuff that has to get done. And then there's the stuff that generally gives you more joy. And when I get overwhelmed, all of my energy goes into the factor of things that have to get done. And I get super impatient. So it, it, I go into like hyper productivity mode, basically. So you get super impatient, which pushes you to be more productive. Exactly. And just, and, and I don't, I no longer have the time or the flexibility to do some of the other things, which generally I'm spending a large chunk of my time on. Yeah. It forces you to shift your priorities, I guess, yeah. a little bit Bingo. when you find Bingo. that, feel that overwhelm. Okay. Well, thank you all three of you for joining me. And Victor, you really made a bold claim. So I want to start by talking to you, if that's all right. Um, sure. I, you have written about online and you and I have spoken about how you feel like you've noticed in yourself what you call a lower amplitude. And I like that image because I do picture, and a lot of people have written about moods as cycling up and down and that everyone has a baseline, but we have amplitude above and below for how we feel at times. And so when you describe having lower amplitude, it seems to me you're describing at least in terms of the lows being closer to your baseline. It doesn't get very stressful for you. And I'm curious if that means you also feel like you don't experience wild swings of joy and happiness as well, or, or what does that low amplitude mean to you and how did you get there? Yeah, it's the, it's a great question. So whenever, uh, whenever I'm running a business, I do a, uh, getting to know the CEO session with my employees, all the employees in the company. And I always describe my emotional arc with this line. I say, here's me, here's me happy. Here's the business just had a huge success. Here's the business is like an existential risk. Like, so I think I have an innate, <laughs> My innate just emotional cadence is low. Now, within that, though, there are absolutely things that I do to keep it in a much narrower band, which is like, how do you how do you de, um, de-amplify all of the system shocks in your life so that you're not hit with these huge, big stress creating moments? Uh, and that's, I think, the secret sauce of the behavior that I've got. So tell me, what are some things that you do to de-amplify this? Yeah, no, shocks? so the, it's, it actually comes down to one very simple thing, and it sounds almost crazy when you think about it, but there's a very famous matrix. It's called the Eisenhower matrix. You guys, I'm sure have probably seen this where it, it puts the world into, into a four block, right? What's important, what's not important, what's urgent, what's not urgent. And there's all sorts of methodologies around well, where do you spend your time and, and actually disagree with all of them. I have a radical view of the Eisenhower matrix, which is that you <laughs> never, I never in general, or I try to never let anything get into the important and urgent quadrant. I will always preempt what has to get done before it becomes urgent because I know it's going to be important. And when you do that, you give yourself massive degrees of freedom and low stress because you are way ahead of what has to get done. And you're always faced with, well, what do I want to do? What's the next urgent thing that I can go do today that I'd actually don't need to do for another month or another week? Okay. So I hear in there planning ahead, but you also need to be able to do a fair amount of predicting. Yes. It isn't just enough to say I plan ahead you have to so what where do you go to get your I, I won't say certainties but your predictions your your probable 
probabilities for the things that could go wrong? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think that comes from experience to a large degree. It's one bucket, which is I can I can see what's coming down because I've run enough businesses and I've been in so many different uh, examples, experiences in a work from a work perspective that have a good sense of where the trains are headed. Uh, but there's also just a pure logistics component of that. So I'll give you a stupid example. Um, uh, we're moving my wife's parents out of their apartment and into a house. Uh, that move, and we signed the lease on that two weeks ago, and the move's not happening for another three weeks. The day after we signed the lease, I was up till probably two in the morning, getting everything ready in our house that's going to be moving. Because I know that's going to become urgent and important. Right. It is going to have to get done at some point and it's going to free up. It's going to be a chunk of time. And that night I was like, oh, I've actually got time to do this. And so I shed everything else that I was doing and I was up till two in the morning and now it's done. I, we could literally move the house tomorrow, even though it's not for four weeks. And that's just a pure logistical preemption, which is I know it's 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 going to be in the quadrant and I want the degrees of freedom later. Great. So you're saying I know what's important. So I'm going to preempt the urgent. Bingo. Is that correct? Bingo. Okay, so experience is great, but I can't buy that. I can't look that up online. So where are some other places I can go for help with predictions? Um, my own experience is definitely valuable, but do you ever look to either mentors or experts in a particular area to help you with the predictions? Oh, absolutely. If I'm, if I'm going into a new zone where I don't know what that Mm -hmm. future path looks like absolutely uh you you do a lot of what's called inquiry talk to a lot of people and just understand right what what is going to be critical what's critical path what's important what insight can they give you uh, so that you can get that into your toolkit yeah do you recommend planning ahead for multiple possible outcomes even knowing you're only going to use one set of list uh, one list right do you make a list for mm -hmm. what happens if this if this if this and do extra planning knowing that not all of it will be utilized uh, I think I would I would rarely go down and mitigate something that's in three different paths because then I feel like it's it may not become right it may not become important it's the it's the known paths of this this really has to happen it's work that has to get done in like ninety percent probability and then I'll preempt please it. don't misunderstand my questions as criticisms I think this is really yeah. interesting I really want to poke at this in one way though what do you do about whatever the business equivalent is of an unexpected house fire. You know, that yeah. is a moment at two in the morning because that's when I always picture house fires happening um, at, because I was a volunteer firefighter and that seems to be when most of them happen. Is it, is that also about planning ahead or do you have a way you handle something that is suddenly unexpectedly both urgent and important? Uh, no, and that ab absolutely happens, right? You will never be able to be a perfect avoider, but what you have done when when you've cleared the field is now you can devote 100% of your time to that to that stress. There's so uh, I'll give you an example. COVID, <laughs> I wasn't planning for COVID before COVID hit, and that was literally, you know, nobody parties, uh, nobody throws parties when there's a pandemic. And so- you know, Oh, and I had you to ran a company inviting people to And I ran a business, yeah, I ran a party company that was you know, in- <laughs> There's companies on the good side of COVID, companies on the bad side. I was on the mm -hmm. bad side. Uh, but because I had preempted all of that work from both a, both a personal and a work perspective, I could devote 110% of my energy to the urgent and important issue of how do you save the business during COVID? And I wasn't bombarded with all the other stresses uh, in my life at the same time. So give you a parallel, if there's a pandemic tomorrow, um, our move is still good because you know, the move is ready. So I've got that extra, it's, it's freeing up time, right? And avoiding running out of time on what's important. That's fantastic because 
so much of overwhelm is due to cumulative stress, yeah. uh, death by a thousand paper cuts. That's and right. so what you're saying is you're avoiding 990 paper cuts. And so it makes the, the other 10, no matter how unexpected they are, less yeah. dangerous. Okay, thank you so much. And we'll come back to you. Uh, Dolores, in your life, you have worked on so many projects against really incredible odds. And you've had unprecedented success. You've also experienced some failures, but I really wanna ask you specifically when you're aiming for something that you know is a good right thing to make happen and you are experiencing obstacles, political obstacles, financial obstacles, policy and logistic obstacles. I mean, things that by any measure are really out of your control, but you have to navigate them or you won't, you know, create an amazing program for lots and lots of girls who have high needs. How do you handle that? What do you do to keep from feeling overwhelmed when you're in a moment where you feel like the hits just keep coming from places that are outside your control? Oh yeah, those hits keep coming. Starting a nonprofit for girls ages eight to 14 to become- What could go wrong, right? And <laughs> Being a keynote speaker and traveling all over the world, literally, boy, overwhelm can knock on my door. So I thought I need to come up with something that will help me and people on my team. And so it's called the DP Take 24. So DP stands for Dolores Presley. And Take 24 means you need to take 24 seconds, 24 minutes, 24 hours, maybe even 24 days, and really look at this and shift your thinking. So for example, you might be overwhelmed and send this email that you know you probably shouldn't have sent, but had you stopped for 24 seconds and thought about it or 24 minutes, I've been married for 44 years. And occasionally, <laughs> my husband and I, we'd be like, oh, it's take 24 time, 24 minutes, maybe 24 days. But when you <laughs> use that process, it can really help you with that overwhelm. One of the things about overwhelm though, is that it steals, it feels like, it doesn't, but it feels very much like it steals our resources. It steals our time. How do you convince yourself? And, and let me go back to kind of earlier in your career, because you got a lot of wisdom now and a lot of practice. But when you were first trying to be discerning in taking a little, taking a moment to breathe, how did you convince yourself that things really could wait? How did you get rid of that feeling of that pressing, almost panicky feeling we can get? Well, I believe we can have it all, but not at the same time. So I would stop and say, okay, Dolores, you want to do this now. And even as I got older, because when I was young, I have a whole story of people robbing me of being a ballerina because they told me I was too fat. And honestly, that made, that actually changed the whole trajectory of my life and helped me be who I am today. But even sometimes imposter syndrome can come and come on me, a person who is a confidence expert, but you have to stop, know what you can do and know that you can do it, you can do it and not let that little voice in your head say, I'm not good enough, I'm overwhelmed, I can't do that. So I practice that, stop it a little bit too, but really you can do it. You can't have it all at the same time. That's my personal opinion, but you can. Okay, so, 
I, and, and that may be the theme of our whole conversation here, that you can have it all, but not all at the exact same time. How do you prioritize? That's very good. I take a moment and write it down. I am so much of a person who will write things down, have the to-do list, all of that. But I really try to prioritize. So what's most important right now, Doris? And what can wait? And a lot of times, a lot of things can wait that we don't even realize. We're like, oh, I got to get this done right now. And especially me, I can be a little hyper, but I'm like, no, this is not that important right now. Let's look at what's very important and work on that first. Fantastic. Okay. That's really helpful. And I now want to ask Russell a couple of questions because Russell, in your career, you've helped so many other people navigate big change, create their own franchise, start a new project or program, get a new product into sales. You do so much in the corporate world that isn't really just your own strength that's needed, your own ability to navigate change. You have to help other people navigate change. So when you're working to do that and they are overwhelmed, how do you approach it? Yeah, it's um, it's tough. You know, I've worked in Australia for a number of years, um, and one of the biggest changes that we had there was the modernization of the Australian Taxation Office. So that's like the IRS in America, and the driver for that big change was that people weren't being compliant; they weren't paying the taxes as much. So they decided on a radical idea: instead of being punitive to people who didn't pay taxes, how can we create circumstances? To make people want to pay their taxes and make it easier for them um, so, and you know radical idea right it wasn't my idea i can't take credit for it but what we noticed was that when you want to introduce really large-scale change people are always going to have a kind of a sense of what's in it for me like if i if i if i lock into your program or if i'm assisting you or being part of what you want to drive um, you need to give them a sense of what's in it for them at, at their level and as well as the greater good and just saying it's for the greater good really doesn't get people involved as much as you think it would so so you have to really start to have conversations we had conversations with a lot of groups and said for the greater good we could do these big changes um and that's and, and i've been a part of changes in government in telecommunications financial industry uh worked as a consultant uh worked as an employee and once you establish the, the bigger thing You've also got to look at the little things. If we were to do this thing, how would it impact you in a positive way? Does it help your career? Does it help you um, understand the business better and make and give you provide opportunities that are going to be helpful in your job? Does it give you ex more experiences that you could be a part of or things that you could be celebrated for and recognized for? So I think addressing change in terms of the personal and in terms of the, of the wider goals is really important and they have genuine conversations like you, you don't just make stuff up to make people feel good you have to really listen to them and <laughs> I think um you know it's it's hard because and you have to acknowledge that it's hard you have to never go into a change conversation thinking we've got a plan if you follow the plan it's going to be easy you have to really be vulnerable and say this is hard for all of us we don't even really necessarily understand this plan fully ourselves and that might sound a little radical, but you have to show that there's some honesty there because sometimes the changes that you think you're going to make, um, those plans change, right? So you have to be okay that 
some things are going to be experimental. In fact, one of my favorite phrases I use today, my, my work as enterprise architect, is that when we start to approach changes, we start to take the smaller things first, the things that are more achievable. And I would always preface it and say, you know, we've never done this before. It's a small thing, not the big thing. Um, this is experimental. We may make some mistakes, but they're going to be short and contained and we'll fail forward very quickly. So I think you have to find a conversation which get people in a state where the anxiety is reduced, you're boosting the confidence, things that are more achievable, small, but yet valuable, and provide a sense of what's in it for them. And when you do that, when you give them small changes to navigate first, that boosts their confidence partially because they see they could do it, right? That small change was hard, but it was only yeah. a little hard and they were successful. Oh, it's like a check in that little box, right? It's like that little to-do list. We, we got that thing, we can do the next thing. And they get more and more excited um, because you've got to celebrate the small wins. You've got to recognize the people who are part of that small win. And you've got to inspire the what's now possible. What could we do next? Um, and that's what I love. I mean, when people ask me what my job is, um, I don't tell them I'm an enterprise architect. My actual response is I love to lead people to their aha moments. That's how I describe my role. Saying enterprise architect doesn't really mean much. But I love to attack the changes uh, and you know for my own personal life um i realize that change is hard too so an example i can give you very recently very true example was the last three or four years we've had a messy basement lots of boxes from other moves two divorced um, partners uh, lots of junk everywhere not really using it and for three years those boxes have sat there and i counted 52 boxes i had my partner had another 30. So I gave myself a goal, a box a week, go through the box and get rid of the stuff. Um, I devised a plan and and um, what I noticed was the plan for doing the hard work had to have like a meta plan. Like if, if going through boxes is hard, what makes that easier? And the last time I went through boxes in the basement years ago, it was horrible. It was dusty and horrible. I didn't know what to do with stuff. It was messy. So, um, so you have to kind of find out what's the plan for the plan a little bit. And, um, and I did that. So I said, you know, I want to make a space that going through boxes will be easier. And, and that space has to be prepared. Masking tape, scissors, marking pens, labels, boxes, totes, um, an area to go through stuff. So you kind of have to do that. And, um, and I learned a lot. Like it actually made the experience much better. And I finished it in four weeks not 50, the 50 weeks I planned for myself, a box a week, uh, it's already done. So like, Okay, and you're an overachiever. But I love that example because I think we all have, or at least can empathize with having a place in our home that could be much more usable or well-organized yeah. or we have a box yeah. we haven't touched. And it seems like this shouldn't be a big deal, but it becomes very overwhelming. And that's a great microcosm to use as an example. My, my kids loved it because they told me, you know what, when you retire and leave this place in 10 years, that's 50 boxes that we don't have to go through. <laughs> They're thinking ahead to being in the sandwich generation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There are some really incredible questions waiting for us in the chat. And if you have thought of a question that you would like to ask, please put it in there as well. Um, I would like to start with this comment that Bruce made. He said, I'm hearing situational awareness. Uh, I feel like that's something that's been described in a lot of these leadership conversations and change navigation conversations. But 
that's more of a way of being and not a thing that we do. Would any of the three of you like to comment on the benefits or blind spots of just thinking, well, situational awareness will get us through and we won't get overwhelmed? I think it's a good starting point. I mean, really understand what the situation is versus what you think it is. And I would also say that your own understanding of it needs to be inclusive of other folks that might be stakeholders in that situation, get their viewpoints. Because a because my viewpoint on my own, from my viewpoint, you know, I have different life experiences, different um, different capacities to do things, different levels of patience. Someone else might be different. So I think get them together and at least define what this situation is that we all think it is. Of a starting point. Yeah, I would say at least from my end, the situational awareness, situational awareness is key to be able to populate accurately what is in your prioritization matrix, but it requires a supreme effort of will to go attack the stuff that's hard that's not due today. So you know, I could, if I blocked out my quadrant, I could say, "Hey, you know, I, I, you know, there's something here that I need to do for six, you know six months from now is going to be useful and important, and I know I need to get it done." Or I could, you know, in the not urgent, not important quadrant, you know, I could play some more Candy Crush. It's like, wow, that's super addicting and super fun. <laughs> and being able to stop and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to play Candy Crush because six months from now, I, I want to free up five hours of my time. And it's going to it's going to free it up because that work is going to come. That takes that takes willpower uh, and or a process and or a process to force you to do that. And handling overwhelm does take willpower. Dolores, your practice of taking 24, that takes willpower. You want to just send the email or the text. You want to just say the thing to your partner. You want to storm the government office who isn't giving you the permit that you need. Um, I wondered, and Dolores, I'd like to start with you, but I wondered if each of you might speak to this question, which is when you have someone in your on your team, whether you work with them or they work for you, and they you've tried your usual things. You've said, hey, why don't you take 24? You've said um, one of Russell's suggestions that I think a lot of us have used in leadership was just to break it down into smaller things, use empathy to acknowledge that this is hard. And they're really pushing back. It's too much. I can't, I can't, I can't. In whatever way they show that, it may just be by avoiding and not getting back to you on the deadline that they promised. How do you approach that team member? And what are some things you've seen that can work? So I definitely say, of course, communication is key. However, we still have to really talk about it and offer them some suggestions. And I always ask, what do you think we can do to improve this? Because I want to include them in the process of how we're going to handle this. And I think a lot of times leaders don't do that. They'll just go in and say, this is how it is and blah, blah, blah. But really, we have to have empathy. We really have to find out what's going on with people because there's so many things in this world right now that people are dealing with. And then we come up with a plan. Now, once we come up with that plan and we're not following through, then we might have to take stricter processes. But for initially, really talk to people. Not only talk, but listen. Listen to what people are saying. That part is harder. It's hard. Oh, yeah. I, I love what Dolores said, though. That is so on point. Um, when I was working for one of the major banks, uh, one of my jobs was to help, help um, executives build business roadmaps for the next 18 months. And it was overwhelming for them because they were under pressure to do certain, uh, accomplish certain results. 
So I used to ask them, you know, what do you want to do? And let's write it on a page and let's write a value proposition about doing that thing to attract a, to attract an investment. And it was really hard. So I switched it, switched gears and I, and I, and I turned my initial engagements with executives into what became known as my therapy sessions. And I'd sit down with an executive director or managing director. And I said for 30 minutes, as a precursor to doing the thing we're going to do to plan your roadmap, tell me about how you feel on Sunday nights before with the thought of going to work on Monday mornings. And and they were like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, do you are you looking forward to work? Um, are there things that you feel that are you're a little bit under the gun, you're not prepared for to do? Um, things that conversations that might be awkward that you're you know you're going to have to have with some people or some groups. And um, and once I gave them permission to express their anxieties or their concerns or their fears in a in a safe one-on-one session. And I always said that these are Las Vegas, Las Vegas sessions, like what stays, what what is stays in, in, in the room. They really open up and you've got to listen and you've got to ask them questions about what they're telling you, you know. And at the end of it, they feel like you've listened to what their concerns are. When you start to develop what are the things that are on their plate to go through, you have a much fuller understanding of how they are and and what things, because some of their concerns are experience, time, money, budget, personal um, life things. Um, the listening helps and that breaks through. And then when you get to doing the actual work, um, you've got their full attention. Um, so that's that's really been helpful to me. The listening is so important. Yeah, Deborah, I'd say on, on my end, two things. One is I very explicitly coach and teach everyone on this idea or try to <laughs> of staying out of that quadrant. And uh, separately, I actually have an on, a free online course on this. It's like a 40-minute session, which I'm happy to send your way. Which Nice. We will definitely put that packaged. link into the into the stuff that we send afterwards. Thank you. Great. Uh, and then the second one is just as I run the business, uh, I so when I apply to myself personally, I apply to the business as the CEO, which is... How do I set the right priorities for the business so that the business itself doesn't get into a position, right? Where it has to go scramble against something that's in the urgent and important quadrant. Now that's harder for a business, right? Because the world changes, but you can absolutely do things, setting targets well before they're needed, right? Setting milestones well in advance to prevent the business from getting into that system stress zone. And that's what I, that's one way that I manage as a leader. Those strategies sound really useful. Someone had asked in the chat a question that I thought was really important to ask you that I hadn't, Victor, about this planning ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, This person wanted to know, how do you make sure that the planning ahead doesn't evolve into overthinking and spiraling? Uh, So there is, I guess there is always a risk that the upfront planning gets wasted. Um, But if you are if you are really generally focused on the stuff that's going to happen at the 90 to 95% confidence level, that extra 5% of wasted time where you've actually kind of unnecessarily planned is well, well, well worth the reduction in stress and the degrees of freedom that you get. So a tactical example on that. So I I said I couldn't preempt COVID and we didn't plan, but that's not totally true. Uh, In November, I was worried. I was very worried about COVID as a CEO, right? I knew that was going to be an existential risk for the business. This was before the world fell apart. And I, you know, went to my team and we started some planning cycles on, okay, maybe, and that was actually a low probability case, but it was a low probability. If this happens, we know the world changes radically. And 
I remember they, you know, they looked at me crazy when I first came in. They're like, what are you talking about, Victor? There's this Chinese thing. <laughs> it's a like, why are we even talking about this? And I said, because if it does happen, right, everything is going to change. So let's just, yeah, it wasn't a huge amount of time. Like, let's go spend a half hour talking about what our plans are going to be. And we were that much better prepared, right, when it when it did happen. So so maybe part of the answer to that question about how you avoid spiraling is that you put a time limit on it. We're going to have one meeting oh, yeah, yeah. about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. I just want to ask one more question of everyone before we start to talk about what we've learned and how people can apply it. And that question is, since we've heard each of you talk in some way about breaking through, getting people to see what's what's really authentically possible for them, what's actually important and urgent, and in that authenticity, how important or not do you feel it is for leaders to show vulnerability around the things that they are concerned about around their own moments where they, at least in your case, Victor, just flirt with being overwhelmed or actually feel overwhelmed? And if so, what are some authentically leader ways, leading ways that you can show that vulnerability without terrifying your team? Um, yeah, I can maybe go first on that one. I've My leadership ethos is always... Uh dangerous dangerously transparent transparency um i i have a just a fundamental belief that the best thing you can do for an organization and your team is to share pretty much everything uh because we're all adults like i hire adults i hire people that are but they're also human beings and i think it is a huge disservice to hide information uh, and let's bring it on the last minute so you know if our business is in financial trouble the team's going to know it's in financial trouble and i'll describe well here's the here's our plan of attack here's what we're going to go do here's the ramifications uh, but I lean towards um, aggressive transparency uh, for that reason. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. We are all human beings. And a lot of times people just don't, they're like feeling like they're superior. Even with the girls, we teach them to be girl bosses. But we teach them to bring others success and significance. So you're going to be a boss, but bring others success and significance and be a human being. And I didn't always be very vulnerable. I wouldn't. Matter of fact, I came from a mother who's like, don't tell, tell people what's going on and things like that. So I had to deal with that in my lifetime, but I've learned to be very vulnerable. It took me probably, I don't know, 20 years to say that I wasn't able to give birth to children. And that was because I hear my mother saying, don't you tell people you're not able to give birth. So I believe vulnerability is so important. It is so important. We must be real and realize we're all human beings. I definitely agree with both. And, you know, when, when a leader shows some vulnerability it humanizes them as a leader and i think one of the one of the techniques a leader can do that is to do some storytelling show the people that there have been times in his or her life where they've had to overcome huge personal or maybe professional obstacles how it made them feel uh, things that they tried and failed with and how they got to, got through through and to the other side. And to show that possibility in a vulnerable way, um, that's now getting you on the path to inspiring the team to say, yes, I've gone through some stuff too. I know I've been in your shoes and it was tough and I've made a few mistakes but we, there's an other side to this. We can get through this together. So I think the vulnerability and um, 
of storytelling, I think true storytelling uh, is also good. Thank you, everybody. I have taken pages of notes. And what I just want to go over really briefly are a few things that you can take away from this conversation right now that you might be able to use today. Victor mentioned this Eisenhower matrix, and this is where you take anything, any idea, any task, and you put it into one of four boxes. It's either important and urgent. It's just, it's important, but not urgent. Urgent, but not important. Other people bring us those a lot or it's none of those things, right? And he says, as much as you can, try to keep things out of the important and urgent box and that it takes a lot of planning. And I think the thing that advanced my thoughts about this today is the idea that the more you do that, when things do jump into the important and urgent box, you have the bandwidth to handle them. You can be resilient because you're not also feeling like, oh my gosh, there goes everything else that was important and urgent that had to get done today. Something that Dolores brought to us that I think is really poignant at this moment. This idea that you can have it all, but not at the same time, often sounds like, like you're having to settle. And that's actually not it at all. If you say, I can have it all, and because I can't have it at the same time, all at the same time, I have to prioritize. I have to match what I am choosing between with my actual goals for the situation or for my organization. And Victor and Russell and Dolores all mentioned this idea of goal setting, of having the big picture. As a leader, I think that sometimes that's the most difficult thing that we have to do. But doing that work isn't just a great idea in case someone asks you for your business plan. It actually allows your organization, your family, to be more resilient. Resilience, as many of you have ever learned with me have heard me say, is the ability to navigate change with intention and purpose. That intention and that purpose comes when you know what the goals are. So when you say, okay, I can have it all, but I can't have it all at the same time, right now, not what's urgent, but what best matches our priorities, what best matches our goals. There are so many other things that have been said. I just want to, before we get to our end, I just want to talk about one thing that Russell brought up over and over again. And that is this in, in several different ways. And that's the idea that when we want other people to do something that is hard for them, there's a few things we should remember. One, it doesn't matter if we think it should be hard for them. It just is. So understanding that it is acknowledging that it is hard for them is a big important step. And then asking the questions that help them put it into perspective with their goals and break it down into smaller pieces allows them to build their competence at navigating that change without feeling so overwhelmed and their confidence that they don't need to be as overwhelmed in this situation because they can do this. When we wrap up, I am gonna send you as I have done in the past, uh, an email with the strategies I heard, but I would also love to hear from you to know what strategies you took away from this that you're gonna try and operationalize. These conversations are all about operationalizing our resilience, that it isn't just something we wanna be, it's something we need to actively do. One of the best ways that we can do that resilience is by protecting and healing ourselves. And so I wanted to end by asking each of our panelists today to talk a little bit about what feels like the opposite of overwhelm to them. When they are starting to feel the stress and feel the impact of a lot of change, 
what do you reach for? Russell, I'd like to start with you. What do you reach for to be the antidote to overwhelm? I'm glad you asked. So I have, I have two little tools I use, and I'm a very tactile person, so I like to have the feeling of no overwhelm and something that I can hold to embrace that feeling. I have this, it's, a, it's called a, a singing ball, and you spin your thing around it, your wood thing, around, and it makes a nice calming tone, and that helps me acknowledge that I've come through a major challenge and I just get that feeling of ah now it's, it's done and then I've got a more a, another thing I use um I actually made this myself it's a I had this um this thing where I wanted to say when I plan on going through big things and remember I said I like to write things down I like to try and put things in a frame of reference of writing things down in certain ways that can be expressed in pictures and, and, and diagrams and notes. But I also like to have a read on where things sit on my calendar. And then I like to have a read on what's going on during the day. So this thing didn't exist. So I had to, I had to create it myself. It's a three, three level of how to think through change. I actually call it my ESP plan, my execute schedule and plan thing. It's tactile, it's organized. And I now, don't have that stress of having to carry a calendar around and a huge sketchbook and a to-do list, like a diary. So, so that tactile sense gives me the, I can look at it, I can touch it, I can feel it. It goes with me everywhere. All my home stuff and my work stuff gets done on this. So Fantastic. that helps me. Yeah. Thank you. Victor, how about you? You know, I think I'll go and I think I have to look at a note because I write this down. I will go back to this blurb that I wrote once, which is, I think I will ask myself, oop, oh, it got really dark. Um, is this something I can let myself get stressed about? Which sounds like a weird thing, but it's it's all about perspective. So let me just read this real quick. So um, when do I allow myself to actually get emotionally stressed? When there is a reasonable chance of a catastrophic event that impacts people I care about, or I cannot control or influence the outcome. That is when I will allow myself to get stressed. Now, the fact I can allow myself to get stressed is a very Spock-like thing. Um, but for <laughs> me, it's about perspective, which is, is this thing that is maybe going to bother me? Does it hit that criteria? And if it doesn't, then it, then I'll just wash it from my brain and say, you know what? It actually doesn't matter in the end of the day. Uh, so in medicine, short answer is, is, yeah, <laughs> elevating it, uh, perspective to the to the right position. If you go to the emergency room, we're going to ask you, you know, is it a 10 out of 10 pain? <laughs> So I think scales yeah. and questions like that are really helpful. Dolores, will you share what you reach for when you're feeling overwhelmed? Looking at anything that makes me smile. It might be a quote in my office. It may be something that I see. It may be my three-year-old great-granddaughter, and she loves to sing, and I will pull out her video and smile, and she calls me Grandma G. Anything that makes me smile is the opposite of overwhelmed. And it can whole, totally change how I feel. There are so many ways into the oxytocin in our brain that gives us that, us that feeling of like, I'm okay. And your eyes are a great way in. For myself, I'm more tactile also, as Russell mentioned. So I will reach for my really fluffy golden retriever, or I will reach for um, a fabric that I really like, or prickly things that I can rub between my hands. I maybe had fidget toys as a kid before we used the term fidget toys. 
but I find if my palms can connect with something, it changes the way I'm feeling. And so those are some strategies that work for us. I encourage you to think about strategies that might work for you because overwhelm is something that happens, but we can use these strategies just to have it happen less often. Thank you so much for your time and your attention today. And I hope that you will join us on March 28th in four weeks when we get to our next topic on the resilience think tank. Bye everybody.